Chapter thirty three of Geographical Reader Europe by Frank G. Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter thirty three The Russian Peasants, a Nation of Villages. We are now in the Great Black Plain, in one of the regions where we can best study the people of Russia. This vast empire may be compared to a huge farm for the russians are largely a nation of farmers the russian people are made up of the emperor and his officials of comparatively few nobles of a few million merchants and artisans who dwell in the cities and a vast number of peasants living in villages surrounded by farms the most important part of russia is village russia the country contains about one hundred million peasants who live in five hundred thousand villages let us stop a moment and try to realize what this means there are so many of these peasants that if all the men women and children of all the world could be gathered into one place one in every fifteen would be a russian peasant farmer in our ride to the black earth zone from odessa we have not seen a single house by itself in the fields there were no fences marking off the farms as in america and no barns nor haystacks standing alone excepting the cowboys and the shepherdesses watching the flocks we did not see a person alone in the fields the people were working in gangs of from half a dozen to a hundred going out together in the morning and coming back in the same way at night and every few miles we passed little groups of thatched huts and we could see other huts in groups dotting the country on both sides the track each collection of huts was a russian village a type of the thousands of villages in all parts of european russia and even in the newest settlements of siberia as well but let us get off at this station and visit one of the villages that man over there in the long overcoat cap high boots and sword is the government guard he puts his hand to his cap and makes a military salute as we accost him he gives our guide the proper directions and within a short time we are driving at full speed over the fields our vehicle is a sort of boat-like tub on wheels to which three horses are fastened one horse is inside the shafts and the others one on each side are hitched to bars which extend from the ends of the axle of the front wheels the carriage and team look sorry enough and we get in with much fear and trembling we have hardly taken our seats however before the driver cracks his whip and the horses go off at great speed the one in the shafts trots at a four-minute pace and those outside go on the gallop so that we fairly fly through the air the road is right over the fields and we drive through green and yellow oceans of rye and wheat which are moving up and down in billows under the winds we cross long fields of yellow sunflowers and go on through meadows where hundreds of sheep are feeding watched by shepherds who lean on their staffs and gaze at us in wonder at last we come to our village it has but one long street lined with straggling thatched huts there are no sidewalks and the street is a wide grass plot except in the middle where the carts have cut deep ruts in the earth there are trees here and there on each side of the roadway under one of them a woman is knitting with her children about her she has tied a box in which lies her baby to one of the branches above her and she swings it now and then as she works farther down on the other side of the street 
are some frowsy-headed, barefooted boys and girls playing. As we stop, they stand and stare at us, while the dogs run out and bark, showing their teeth. Take a look at the huts. Few of them have gardens about them. There are no fences to shut them off from their neighbors or from the road. The average home is a one-story log cabin, about twenty feet square, roofed with straw thatch about a foot and a half thick. Where wood is scarce, the huts are often made of woven twigs, plastered with mud. A few of the larger houses have barns or stables joined to them in an L at the rear, so that the animals and people live under the same roof. Let us enter one of the little homes. They are all made the same way, each having two rooms and a loft. We first go into an anteroom, which is used as a storeroom and stable. There is harness hanging upon the walls, farming tools lie upon the floor, and bags of corn are piled up in a corner. A chicken runs between our legs as we enter, and a calf at the back looks as though it might do the same. Passing through this room, we reach the other room of the house. Indeed, it might be called the only room, for the first is little more than a vestibule, while this room serves as kitchen, dining room, bedroom, and parlor. At one side of it there is a brick stove, or oven and chimney combined, so built up from the floor that there is a ledge four feet wide and about six feet long, just over the oven and under the ceiling. In the oven the cooking is done, and that ledge above it is the common bed of the family. There in the winter as many can crawl in and sleep on the hot bricks while the others lie on the floor. There are no bedsteads and little or no bedclothing. The whole family huddle together like so many sheep, men and women, boys and girls, babies and grandparents, all bunched in together. They sleep in the same clothes they wear in the daytime, and rely largely upon their own animal heat and the oven to keep themselves warm. As we enter, our host asks us to be seated, and we look around for chairs. There are only two to be seen, but we take seats on the benches which run around the wall. There is a bare table at one side of the room, and the man asks us to stay and have dinner with him. We do so, and watch his wife lay the table. She does this very quickly, for they use no tablecloth, and no plates, knives, or forks. All she does is put a wooden basin, about as big as a common tin wash basin, filled with cabbage soup, in the center of the board, and lay some wooden spoons beside it. We are hungry after our jolting ride over the fields, and the soup gives forth an appetizing odor as it smokes away on the table. The woman now motions us to draw up our benches. We sit down with the family. We are each given a wooden spoon, about as big as the largest tablespoon, and are told to dip in. We are at a loss how to begin until our host puts in his spoon and conveys some soup to his mouth. We do likewise, each dipping in turn, until the basin is empty. In addition to the soup, we each have black bread and raw cucumbers. There is no butter, and the meal seems plain and scanty, after our luxurious living at the Russian hotels. Still, such is the common everyday food of millions of Russians. Some of the peasants have cows and chickens, and hence milk and eggs. Now and then they may have a little fish or meat, but as a rule, if they have cabbage soup and bread, they think they do very well. We are surprised to find how many people live in one hut. Sometimes as many as twelve live in one room. The most of the Russian peasants are poor and very few save money. 
they do not seem to care for the future and live from hand to mouth so that if a bad season occurs a famine ensues and they die by the thousand if you tell them they should say for bad times may come they will say oh god and the czar will provide the russian peasants have but few wants if a man has a suit of sheepskin for the winter and of cotton for the summer with perhaps an extra suit for sundays and holidays he is quite content in the hot weather he wears a red calico shirt outside his white or blue cotton trousers the trousers are fastened by a string around the waist and are often bound in just below the knees with rags which wrapped around and round the legs and feet serve also for stockings the richer peasants wear leather boots and long overcoats of cloth or skin the poor have felt boots for winter and slippers of woven grass or bark for summer the woman's dress consists chiefly of a bright-colored handkerchief which is tied round the head so that one corner falls down over the neck at the back a loose gown of white red or blue cotton cut low at the neck which reaches almost to her ankles and an apron gathered in at the waist and extending down to her knees a pair of rag stockings and straw or bark shoes completes the costume the dress of both women and men varies considerably in different parts of the empire one of the oddest things in our village is the bathhouse the peasants do not wash often but when they do they boil or steam themselves clean they get into an oven-like bathhouse which is filled with steam and remain there until they have perspired the dirt out of their pores they look parboiled when they come out but the steam makes them really much cleaner than a bath in warm water would in the cities there are large public baths containing many steam rooms the peasants are very religious we shall find churches in every district and in every hut we enter a candle is burning away under an icon or a painting of the saviour the virgin mary or one of the saints the peasant always says a prayer when he starts out to work he says a prayer and crosses himself whenever he passes a church and he crosses himself when he stops work to go home he would not think of living in a house without one of the holy pictures on his walls and he often makes pilgrimages to shrines and churches which are considered especially sacred the most of the peasants are uneducated very few of them can read and write although of late schools for peasant children have been established in the different parts of the empire the peasants are much like children they call the czar father and look up to him with reverence they were for a long time in a state of serfdom to the nobles they were almost the same as slaves and it was only at about the time of our civil war that the czar made them free they are gradually growing more and more independent and at some time will probably form a very strong and great nation the peasants own about one-third of the cultivated lands of russia but they hold this land in a curious way in the united states every farmer has his own farm and he plants his crops and pays his taxes without asking questions of anyone in russia each village owns a large block of land in common and the taxes are paid by the village and not by the individual each village is known as a mir this word means world for each village is a little world in itself the mir is supposed to own the houses and lands of the village and to divide them up among the people from year to year each person having an equal right to the whole every family keeps its house and a little strip of ground 
but the lands outside are divided among and farmed by the people in common this is the reason we saw no one working alone in the fields the men women and older children all go out together to sow reap and bring in the crops the village authorities fix the times for sowing and reaping they appoint leaders for the people at work and say just when to begin the villagers elect their own officers and as to local matters they govern themselves they choose their own judges and policemen and can punish wrongdoers the village assemblies and elections take place in the open air when the people discuss among themselves all matters relating to their crops and their government several such villages constitute a volost containing about two thousand householders each village electing members to the district council which chooses the officers for the district the districts of each province in turn send representatives to a provincial assembly composed of not only the peasants but the nobles as well all are elected so you see the russians largely govern themselves although the czar appoints the governors of the provinces and his authority is over all the russian peasants are very fond of this village system and a man will not leave his mere for he does not want to lose his right to the property owned by his village if he can save money he can buy lands outside this but as a rule the peasants have only the lands which they hold in common. End of chapter 33